This is the Dungeon Master's Handbook. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Dungeon Master's Handbook. I'm Michael Shorten, Chicago Wiz. Glad you're here with me. On this episode, I'm going to catch up on all of the games that I'm running and talk about a lesson that I've learned from each of them. And I'm finally going to get started on something that I've been promising for a long time. I'm going to talk about how Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Combat, by the book Combat, is not really as hard as we've all been making it out to seem. So buckle in and let's see if this is a short episode or a long one. Okay, well, as I said, we're going to get caught up on the games I've been running. I've done a lot of gaming over the past uh, couple of weeks, and I've got a lot to share with you, so let's get to it. In my online play-by-post game that uh, I run out of my Etnera campaign world, um, the PCs have just finished up exploring this temple in the ruined city of Ramathia. Things didn't exactly end up going as they had planned. They were investigating the catacombs underneath. They had opened up a mysterious door that seemed older and more corroded than the other doors. They found themselves in some tunnels with some strange creatures that uh, they think are, were giant beetles, but they weren't exactly sure. Then they went past them without disturbing them, and found yet another door that was even more corroded and more blocked up. So in typical PC fashion, they're like, eh, we'll go back and we'll go back and investigate this interesting secret door that we found. Unfortunately, once they got the secret door opened, they found a tomb behind it that uh, upon disturbing it, priest spirit within came out didn't like them because of a very bad reaction role, and began to summon forth all of the tomb's guardians. So the PCs decided, you know what, we're going to get out of Dodge. They managed to make it out of the tomb before, or out of the temple before the temple fell in upon itself. And now they've decided to regroup and head out a different direction to try to find some libraries or some information that they've come to the ruined city to find. So this whole thing uh, was a great example to me as a DM of being willing to leave it all behind. And what do I mean by that? Well, I knew that they were going through the catacombs and that they were probably going to get to an area that was going to take them into an underworld area of this lost city of Romathia. So over the past few weeks, I've been working on what the Undercity looked like. Uh, what kind of a dungeon was it? You know, I came up with the map. I came up with what was in the Undercity and, and how that would look and the different factions and the treasure and what have you, only to find out that the PCs maybe are never going to get to there. They may, they may not. But um, it, it's once again a lesson that uh, doing just what I call just-in-time preparation is is of benefit. I mean, I could have mapped this out, you know, three, four, five months ago and had put a lot of time into it. 
only for them to walk away. But instead, I waited till they were getting close. I mapped out enough of it so that, you know, if they started to get into it, there would be enough there for me to work with. But now they're going to walk away from it. And I'm willing to let it sit there. They may never touch this dungeon ever, but it's still there should anyone else want to get to it. Or maybe they'll decide to return and explore it, especially now since they're listening to the podcast. They'll be like, ooh, what did Michael put in there? Lots of evil things, players. Lots of evil things. It's a death trap. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, and, and I have lots of things in my campaign world. I mean, I've been working on this thing for a long time now. There are lots of pieces and places and stuff that I've prepared for the players. And they've decided not to go near or they decided to walk away from. And that's okay. I learn from preparing these things. I learn from, you know, having it there and going through the exercise. And it gives me lots of ideas for lore that I can enrich my world with, even though they may never actually get to that place. So that is the lesson from the online play by post game. Okay, so next game that I've been running is my bi-weekly Tuesday night game on Discord and Roll20 that also is out of my Etnera world, but in a different location. The players there have traveled to a large nearby uh, town called Tania, where they wanted to re-equip and meet with the local lord known as the Marshal, Marshal Selfridge. And they wanted to bring Marshall Selfridge up to speed on a pretty big threat. There's the possibility of orcs and goblins and evil human mages creating some sort of a stronghold in a nearby ruined fortress. So they went, they met with the marshal. We did a little role playing where they interacted with the marshal and the marshal's wizard. And uh, the marshal is very pleased with them. He said, I'm surprised that somebody is actually taking the initiative on their own to go and put their lives in danger to stop this threat. And of course, he wants to encourage that. So he has authorized the players to go do that. And he will give them a reward that's, uh, as he put it, would be comparable to what I would pay a mercenary company to go out and do the same. So we're talking a good bit of gold the players could actually make on this. He's also going to be sending some reinforcements, but they're going to, it's going to take him time to raise a militia, get the forces together, and actually send them on. So the players want to go back now to have the element of surprise. What's interesting, and once again, uh, not necessarily a lesson learned, but uh, a reminder to me, I had um, shown the players that there was a magical device in the old ruined keep. It's a teleportation circle. And the players have learned that back a long time ago in the history of Etnera, a great many of the keeps and fortresses and whatnot were connected to each other by these teleportation circles. And if you had the right symbols, you could essentially dial up the uh, the right address and cast the appropriate spells and you would be able to be teleported to this location. <clears throat> I'm not ripping off Stargate. 
<laughs> so the players learned about this, and they asked the marshal and the wizard, well, do you know if you can use the teleportation circle to get us to this location? And sure enough, the uh, wizard does. So the players are going to use this and uh, use the element of surprise, which means is that the way I had things kind of mapped out in my head as to how this was going to possibly go, not that I plotted things out, but I had an idea of like, well, you're going to see this when you get up the hill and you're going to see this when you get to the moat house and you're going to see this when you get to this and that. Um, that's going to change a little bit. They're going to land themselves right in the middle of things. So it's forcing me to kind of look at it from that perspective and figure out how the monsters might react. So uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun and we'll see what happens uh, next week when the players uh, come back and, and they put their plan into effect. Okay, in my Etnera tabletop game, uh, we celebrated our annual holiday feast and game. Uh, I like to do that in December where we'll, we'll kind of put a little bit extra effort into the food that we prepare. And I always try to make the game a little bit extra special, put a little extra oomph into it. I also like to prepare uh, something good for the players to eat, you know. Uh, this year, I did something a little different. Previous years, I found an old recipe from uh, the Judges Guild website that's on the web archive for rat on a stick. What it essentially is, it's a hunk of meatloaf with a block of cheese in the center on a skewer, and then you wrap a piece of softened spaghetti around the skewer and stick it into the end of this uh, uh, hunk of meatloaf, and it ends up looking like, well, a rat on a stick. It's a lot of fun. I had done that for the past couple of years. Um, I decided to do something different this year, so I ended up making tavern stew. And I bought uh, some from Sam's Club. I got some Kaiser rolls and made little uh, bowls out of them so people could, you know, put the stew in the bowl and have a little tavern meal. It was a lot of fun. We had some beer. Um, I bought some uh, what's known as Dragon's Milk beer. Really good. Um, other people brought, you know, cookies and candies and treats, uh, pizza. And so we had a really nice time. It was, it was really a, a fun holiday feast. Now, in my tabletop game, the players are on a pretty major quest. They are exploring an abandoned set of ruins called Tulloch, which used to be a stronghold for the Chaos Lords that had long ago ruled uh, the campaign world. They have been, they had gone pretty deep down, probably the equivalent of fifth, sixth level in the dungeon, and they had found a demon fortress. They had explored that a little bit, had been given actually a quest by the demon skeleton guardian within to help free the demon so that they could return to their own plane. And in return, the demon would tell them where to find what they're seeking, which is a legendary sword, which will kill the Chaos Lords. They kind of did a little back and forth, you know, players, they... they get, you know, interested in something. They had encountered a strange race of myconid creatures called Ilum, and through that kind of distraction, they went back to the set of tunnels, which I'm calling the Xeno Tunnels, because the creatures are, <clears throat> could be ripoffs of Xenomorphs from uh, uh, aliens, but instead I'm using carrion crawlers as the Xenomorphs. 
Karen crawlers are a lot of fun, especially when you start making them into xenomorphs. I should talk about that another time. Um, it's just been fun to throw that at the players. So they got distracted with that. They went back to the Xeno tunnels, and but this game, they're like, you know what? We're going to get back on track. They went back to the Demon Fortress. Their job was was to take this hammer and destroy a gem, the gem of Zukuth. And if they destroyed the gem, that would free the demons who have been left trapped here in this demon fortress. They would be allowed to go back to the demon plane, if you will, and then the guardian would um, would you know tell them what they wanted to know. In exploring around, they found a chaos dagger, which was cursed. One of my players picked it up and was beginning a slow transformation into a slave of chaos. But fortunately, the players figured out a way of saving the poor player. They had uh, to use a dispel magic on uh, for a different reason and I started describing to the cursed player how things felt different now um, you know you know that this is a repulsive item that you have rather than you know something you know my precious that I want now this is something you want to get rid of but you can't you need to be spiritually fortified and this is another thing that I've been learning to do as a DM it's to expand the use of spells beyond what the uh, description is in the book. And I'm going to take a moment to pick on Bless. You know, Bless is a spell that if you read the rules, it basically, you know, gives you uh, bonuses to saving throws and to combat. But in my mind, I always picture these spells as, especially clerical spells, as being like miracles. You know, a, a cleric is praying to their god or they're singing a song or they're doing a chant or whatever it is that they're doing to bring the power of the divine through them and to have this effect. And I've always viewed Bless especially as kind of like a Swiss army knife of spells. Because in my mind, a bless, if you're bringing the blessing of your divine to your friends, to you, the people around you, that to me is much more than just a mechanical effect. You know, there's, there's a real emphasis here. You have been blessed by the divine. And so, and actually I, I owe some of this, taking a step back, I owe some of this uh, concept to a player in my play-by-post game, Joe, um, who plays the uh, cleric of Callan, cleric of the light. He has been a uh, uh, one of those players that's really challenged me by asking, can I use this spell to do this? Can I use this spell to do that? Kind of taking it beyond what you know, the book says to do. And I like that. I, you know, and, and it kind of goes along with the idea of magical research. There, there's no reason that if, if a mage can make a spell, there's no reason that a cleric can't do something similar by taking the powers given to him by the divine and going and doing something else with it. So I, I've really encouraged that. I, you know, Joe has really helped me to really kind of buy into that. And so uh, when I started describing to the player, you know, you feel like that if you're spiritually fortified that, you know, you might actually be able to throw this this dagger away now. Cleric uh, that was with the party cast Bless, and so the, uh, the player was able to indeed throw down the dagger, and nobody wanted to touch it. In fact, they kicked it off the side of a building, so, uh, so all is well and good. No cursed players. 
So anyway, to continue on the game, the uh, players did find the gem of Zukuth, and they found out that what they had been told by the Guardian actually wasn't going to happen. The Demon Lord had actually exiled everyone in in the fortress to stay there in case the Lord wanted to return. In fact, the gem of Zukuth is a basically a, like a magic jar or a container that holds the soul of this demon lord's most uh, strongest second. I guess the demon lord probably figured, hey, this guy's getting too powerful. I need to do something with him. So he condemned him to be tied to this gem. And so, you know, the, 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 the soul within doesn't want to be destroyed. So the soul told the players the truth. You do this. It's not going to have the effect that, you, that the Guardian thinks. Instead of returning to their plane, the Guardians are just simply going to be freed, but still trapped in your world. And what do you think they're going to do when they find out the truth? Yeah, they're probably going to come after you. So the gem struck a bargain with the players that if they didn't destroy it, it would tell them how to find this weapon that they're looking for. So they agreed. It did indeed tell them that. And so they left. So the final uh, kind of bit to this was they were going along this separate way, which takes them close to the demon fortress, but not quite in it. The Guardian figured out that, you know what, the players are not going to free him. So obviously very upset. It uh, basically summoned all of the chaotic demons that were left in this, uh, in this fortress and sent it after them. And one of the guardians that they ran into was a black pudding. I don't think my players had ever encountered a black pudding before. And for those of you that haven't, uh, this might be a bit of a spoiler, so you might want to skip the next few minutes. Those of you that have encountered a black pudding, you know exactly what's coming up. Yep, they attacked the black pudding. And so it kept splitting in half, and it kept splitting in half, and it kept splitting in half. And several of the uh, powerful fighters and paladins, their armor is severely degraded now, um, if not destroyed. So there, there, there's some unhappy players right now walking around, uh, creeping around the side of a demon fortress. They did manage to destroy the uh, black pudding, and I kind of left uh, the game on a cliffhanger because as they were looking past where the black pudding has come, they could see the far-off faint glow of the Guardian's flaming sword as it's coming towards them. So next session, we'll see what happens. So great, great episode. Left it on a great cliffhanger. Everybody had a lot of fun. They were really engaged with it. We'll, we'll see what happens next time. All right, so a um, couple of quick notes on the other games I'm running. Um, I haven't had a chance to play my one-on-one uh, -on -one game with uh, Angie, my wife. Um, hopefully we'll be able to do that this weekend, uh, this coming weekend, because we're uh, celebrating our 14th wedding anniversary. Um, so we're going to have a little time to ourselves. The we are going to have no children in the house. Um, I don't know if we're going to end up napping the entire time, but I am going to try and play a little more D&D &D with her. Um, she is currently uh, on the ocean sailing towards a strange port where I'm going to uh, allow myself to be influenced by thoughts of the city of Jakala from the game uh, Empire of the Petal Throne, Tecumel, with its strange cultures and, and how people operate there, but we'll talk about that later. So I'm looking forward to that. And I'm DMing 
actually a fifth edition campaign for my family. I'm using the Minds of Fandelver. And that's been kind of an interesting learning curve. I've really struggled with running fifth edition. And I think a lot of it had to do was I was trying to run it like a first edition game. And I've kind of had to let that go. So I've purposely slowed myself down now. I'm really kind of following step by step through the rules, including allowing the players to do all of the rolling that they want to do. I'll give you an example. So my two granddaughters were facing a couple of uh, uh, bandits. My uh, granddaughter wanted to push through the barrels and try to push the bandits down on the other side. So I, ha I had them do an opposing strength check. I also said that, well, due to the fact that you're trying to do this, one of the uh, bandits is going to stab at you, and because you're more concentrating on the barrels, uh, they're going to have an advantage in attacking you, which means is that they get to roll two d20s and they take the better of the two. Do I like the all of the rolling? Not necessarily, but I'm finding that if I accept it and kind of roll with it, <laughs> roll with it, get it, da da da. Um, <laughs> if I roll with it, the game actually flows a little bit better, you know, and 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 it kind of goes with the mechanics and 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 it's just a different way of playing the game. I, I think I'm going to go with that for a while, and then, you know, I'll try to dial it back to the way that I like to play D&D, &D, which is more of kind of winging it on the fly. But for right now, we're going to, you know, we're going to play with it the way it is. So that's it on my games, and oh my goodness, I'm already up to 22 minutes, and I haven't gotten to advanced Dungeon Dragons combat yet. Did warn you this might be a little bit of a long episode. Uh, before we do that, though, I'd like to introduce someone who left a message for me. Hi, Michael. It's Goblin Senshuan here. Just a quick voice message, um, and I apologize for the, the traffic noise in the background. But I uh, just want to let you know that I enjoyed the podcast, but uh, that I found it, it very difficult to actually find the podcast on Anchor to leave this message. I think, unfortunately, there's too many Dungeon Masters and handbooks and things like that out there. So top tip for anyone looking for you on Anchor, look for you via the, the people searching option. So look for Michael Shorten, and you have half a chance of finding the, uh, the app to leave a message. Um, so yes, I just want to say um, I definitely want to would like to hear an episode about uh, AD and D by the book combat. You talked about charging rules and and stuff like that. Um, I think it's very really good to know the by the book method, and then you can always decide whether you want to go with that or go for something a bit more streamlined. Anyway, uh, thanks for doing the podcast. Cheers. Bye. Well, thanks, Goblins Henchman, for being my first call-in. Really nice to hear from you. Um, I first connected with Goblins Henchman through a post that he had done on his blog concerning putting together weather. I had done a, an episode of the podcast uh, three or four episodes ago about how I like to incorporate weather and how I found a way of doing weather easily in my campaign. So if you want to go back to that episode, it might, it's a good episode. It talks a little bit about how I do things. I encourage you to check it out. But thanks. And um, for those of you, if you want to call in, leave me a comment, ask a question, you know, have something to say, um, there's a couple of ways you can do it. One is if you're accessing this podcast through Anchor, or if you can click on the link to go to Anchor, you can leave a short one-minute message. 
The other way you can do it is I actually have a voicemail box dedicated to the Dungeon Master's Handbook. Uh, you can get that uh, phone number off of the description of the podcast or from my blog posts where I, I uh, talk about my podcasts. Um, I unfortunately don't have the number right in front of me, bad Michael, but uh, you can easily get that from there. So let me talk a little bit about doing D&D. So this is going to be a topic that is going to take up several episodes. I actually tried recording an episode on it, and I was up to 45 minutes and said, whoa, I'm going to have to break this apart. But before I actually get into it, and I'll, I'll record that episode on initiative and surprise and, and leave it for next week, I wanted to end this podcast this week talking a little bit of background about why I think it is that AD&D Combat by the Book gets such a bad rap. Because if you go onto the internet and you ask people, hey, you know, what do you think about AD&D Combat? You're going to hear stories about how difficult it is and about how you got to worry about segments and how weapon speed is so hard. And, you know, they even care about which weapon is bigger. And, you know, depending on which weapon you're using, it, you know, it modifies armor class and, and it's just too complicated and too hard. And I myself bought into that, you know, the conventional wisdom thing. But let's take a step back for a minute and consider a couple of things. First thing to consider is that a lot of us learned D&D not through advanced D&D, but actually through basic or basic and expert or Beckme, which was the Menser version of basic D&D that was put out in the mid 80s. Or maybe you learned through kind of a hybrid of all of those. Maybe you, you know, learned D&D. Maybe we, you know, back then we were, I know I as a kid, I had the AD&D books. I had the basic books. And when I sat down to play, we generally kind of mishmashed everything together and played what was fun for us. So I personally don't know if a lot of us actually really sat down and learned the advanced D&D combat rules. I know a lot of, I know, you know, a good number of people did, obviously. I know there were a lot of people playing AD&D, but I wonder if a lot of us really didn't either take the time to really understand the rules, if we just didn't care, probably like myself, or if, um, you know, we didn't have the luxury of being with people who did understand the rules and could explain them to us. And I have a sneaking suspicion that that's where a lot of this bias comes in from, that, you know, we we look at BX, basic expert, or we look at these simpler versions, and then we look at, you know, something like advanced D&D, and we think, oh, you know, this is too difficult. I kind of fell into that trap when I came back into Dungeons & Dragons 2 in the late aughts. Um, I hadn't played D&D for almost 15 years. When I came back into it in 2008-2009, I went to 3rd edition, which I just absolutely hated preparing for. I figured out that when I have to make a spreadsheet to understand all of the uh, challenge ratings and treasure and whatnot for a dungeon, this was not the game for me. I went back to what I liked, which was 
basic and then advanced Dungeons and Dragons. When I went back to that, though, I kind of bought into this mindset from reading what other people were saying that advanced Dungeons and Dragons combat was too hard. There are um, things written on the web that I think are made to show how complicated it could be. And, and I'm, I'm talking about this document called Addict, A-D-D-I-C-T, um, from the Dragon's Foot Forum. If you look at that, yeah, Advanced Dungeon Dragons combat seems really hard, but it's not. And I'm going to, again, take a step back and talk about why it might come across as, at first as being really difficult. So if you look at D&D, &D, 1974, Guy, Gary Gygax and David Arneson, you know, come up with these three booklets. And OD&D, &D, original D&D &D as written, is very simple and it's also very general because it was written for a specific audience that Gary and David have in mind. That was for people who already understood wargaming or people who kind of already had this idea of how to referee and run games similar to war games that they were playing. You know, Dave Arneson was with his group in Minneapolis, and they had, you know, they had been playing war games for a long time using various rules like um, Strategos N and uh, other rules that they had kind of come up with. You know, Gary and his group in Lake Geneva were using their own set of rules, which we believe now to be, you know, similar to Chainmail. And so they all kind of had this underlying understanding of how games worked. And OD&D as written was kind of this layer to put on the top of what you already had. Now they threw in, you know, some guidance, you know, you could either use chain mail to conduct combats or you could use this alternative D20 based system that they threw into the rules, which is what most people ended up using. But the idea was you kind of already had this basis. Now, move to 1979 and look at AD&D for what it is. This is the very first time that uh, somebody is trying to write and codify a set of rules over a game that quite literally has exploded far beyond what they had ever imagined. And it's my understanding from reading and researching that a lot of the driving force behind Advanced Dungeons & Dragons was to try and codify the rules in such a way so that there wasn't all this ambiguity. That if you played AD&D at one game in a convention and you went home and played it with another dungeon master, you were going to have relatively kind of the same experience. But nobody had done that before. So... Yeah, when you look through the rules of AD&D 1st Edition, it is kind of a hodgepodge. You know, you've got conflicting or kind of bad examples, as Eric Tankar of uh, Tankar's Tavern pointed out in a podcast a few weeks ago. You know, surprise, as explained in the AD&D Player's Handbook, is really confusing as compared to how it's explained in the Dungeon Master's Handbook. I'll grant you that. You will get no argument from me. But what I will argue is that if you take a little time to sit down, read the rules, kind of develop your own checklist or your own understanding of how they work, it's really not that hard, 
even with segments, even with weapon speed, uh, and all of the other things. And at its very basic core, it's not really that different. You just have to kind of change your viewpoint from a basic expert standpoint of how combat should work and look at it from an AD&D uh, viewpoint of how combat's going to work. And you know what? This podcast is already getting too long, so I'm going to cut it short here. I will release uh, a following episode here in a few days or next week where we're going to get into it a little bit more and we're going to talk about surprise and initiative and segments. And I'm going to pull back the curtain and demystify it for you. All right. So that's it for this week. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Hope you've enjoyed. And until next time, game on.